You are listening to Checkbox Outreach, a podcast that showcases excellence and raises awareness of current issues from those who are directly impacted, but typically not at the table. Now, here are your hosts, Aaliyah Gaskins and Katie Leonard. Hi, welcome to Checkbox Outreach. This is Katie Leonard. And this is Aaliyah Gaskins. And we're excited to have you join us for another episode of Checkbox Outreach. Today, we are joined by Salvador Amato, who brings over two decades of experience in workforce development, education, and training. And he's here today to share with us his experience as a resident of Alexandria, Virginia, and his observations about how these issues and these important topics impact our city, but also particularly communities of color, and what it's going to take for us to do our education, our workforce development, our mentorship programs, what's it going to take to do them different and have a bigger impact across our city. So welcome to the show. Excited to have you, Sal. Thank you so much. How is everybody here? We are awesome. I'm good, great. I'm good. not going to speak for Aaliyah. <laughs> I am doing very well. So I just want to give Aaliyah a very public shout out because Aaliyah literally just gave birth a few days ago to an uh, amazing newborn baby boy. And she has been so like gangsta in terms of, you know, doing stuff for checkbox outreach and getting emails out. So I just need to give you credit. We're credit. Well, I appreciate the shout out. I have to give credit to my baby because <laughs> he is sleeping now and is staying asleep and allowing mom to do this. So really appreciate it. <laughs> love it, love it. Well, Sal, we are so excited to have you on. I just think your story and your perspective on everything is amazing based on our previous conversations. Um, but tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Yes. Uh, thank you so much for having me today. It's uh, it's going to be a, a, a pleasure, obviously, I can tell already. Um, a little bit about me. I am a gay Latino male, originally from Mexico, um, and my family uh, landed in Florida um, when I was of the age of four uh, during the Reagan administration and moved to Alexandria about almost 10 years ago now. And Taking my experiences all from Florida to now has been such a really interesting journey to the point where I even became a citizen finally last year and actually changed my name as well uh, to Salvador Amado. My last name used to be Torres and um, I feel like a new person. So this is a really interesting journey that I've been having and really enjoying the process of kind of, you know, creating my identity. So can you tell us a little bit about, I guess, the journey even to citizenship and what that really means? Um, because you've always had experiences, you've always yeah. had different community, you know, different community impacts. But what is what is a transition like? Like, what was that? You, you know, it was it's funny you say that. <laughs> Every time I always thought of becoming a citizen, even though I'm like the only one in my family I had not become a citizen. Um, and there's seven of us. And. I always felt that I was kind of betraying my history. And I think for me, it was the idea that if I really truly want to make an impact, I also should make an impact at the, at the, at the box, you know, at voting box. And, and for me, that's really important. And I think that came to light even more so uh, just a couple of years ago, just to see how things were going. And I really couldn't share my opinion because if I didn't vote, I really, in some ways, didn't have an opinion. 
So I made that decision to kind of forego everything and say, you know what, let's do this. And in fact, I took one last trip to Mexico before I became a U.S. citizen in Mexico City and just kind of took in the history of who I am. Sal, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about sort of the work that you're doing now and how you're bringing that history and perspective to the platform that you've created for your work. Yeah, I think for me, the idea of becoming a citizen and also how it impacts my work has been really about access and having access to voting and having access to healthcare, having access to all these little things that you never think of doing that. And my goal has always been to open doors for people in my community where access may not always be there and to be able to understand how to open doors and to create policy um, or influence policy really in, in a way that we're able to open those doors for people. I think that's just been really important. At what point, like, how did you know that? Because I feel like a lot of times I didn't learn the impacts of policy and what that meant for ch- making real change until like late in my career or like when I was just getting started professionally. So where did that become very apparent to you? I think that really came apparent when I um, actually got a job when I was 23 years old working for um, Hillsborough Community College, College back in Florida. And it was about uh, creating access for Latino students because we had a huge dropout rate in Hillsborough County. And uh, the University of South Florida, where I Go Bulls, graduated from. Go Bulls, go uh, Bulls. Yeah, Go Bulls. <laughs> we, uh, we applied for a, a $25 million grant along with other cities across the country. And the whole focus was access to, un, you know, just to access for Latino students into higher education. And through that project, I was able to learn that the undocumented student didn't have access, even though that the student was working so hard during the K-12 system that they couldn't have access to that in the, you know, community college or whatever it may be. So I actually did some research and um, my love of law and my love of policy came into play and was able to create a policy where undocumented students was, were able to have access to community college back in Florida. Wow. Now, I think, you know, sometimes I think people confuse, you know, policy and politics. And they think that because our political system is, you know, trash right now, for lack of a better word, um, I feel like they're like, oh, I don't want to engage. I don't think my vote matters. I don't want to be a part of these conversations. When How do you talk about like why the policies you're working on are so important and why they matter and how we have to like push past some of these surface level conversations that we see in our political discourse in order to actually advance some of these deep changes that you're talking about? I mean, I think I I look at that in my own way of really deciding to become a citizen, even from last year, I'm I'm 42, going to be 43 years old and became a citizen when I was 42, literally back in September. And, and to me, the idea of not being able to have an impact and that way, that little sticker really means a lot. <laughs> Believe me, mm-hmm. that little sticker when people I voted today meant a lot to me. And I was just, in some way, I was a little envious of that. But I also decided that that was a big part of my change and a part of my accountability. And I think that's a really big word, accountability and ownership. I own what I do. And for us to be able to understand what we need to do to make sure that people have access, you 
we have to see our policies. We have to see what we can do to change ourselves first. We have to change ourselves first in order for us to understand the greater good or the our neighbors, our friends, our family. And I, I think for me, that was really critical to understand that. And I didn't understand that. I, I guess I didn't understand how much I was not really affecting people until I actually started to realize I have a, a duty, right, to, to be able to change impact voting or a duty to speak up, uh, to see kind of the wrongs and to say, what is it that I can do to change that? So when you're looking at, you know, the issues that you've been working on, like why, if you had to explain it to somebody, like why is that specific issue important for this right. community? Yeah, I, I, that's a good question, um, Katie, because for me, there are three basic things I think maybe that we all have as citizens. Um, one of them is healthcare. The second one is a job. And the third is education. And they're all interrelated. Uh, because they all focus on the economy, the overall of the economy. If, if you don't have good health, you don't have a good job, right? Well, we're seeing if that now, right, with COVID right. and people not even understanding the impacts of, and I'm not going to lie, when COVID first was, you know, coming on the scene, January, February, even early March, I didn't even understand I didn't even comprehend. I have a public health degree and I still didn't under, understand the economic impacts of what sickness would do for our workforce and how that would impact our economy. So that interrelatedness yeah. is so powerful. And I think COVID just really shines light on that, even for people like myself, who I thought I knew what was going on. And I thought, you know, I was aware, but I really had no idea. I, I think what COVID has done for me is shown a lot of the gaps. Right. It's exposed those gaps, those places where we need to start building bridges uh, to suture, right, to bring them back together. And I've noticed that in our Latino community here in Alexandria, I've noticed that we don't necessarily always communicate well to the population. We don't always engage with the population, you know, when it yeah. comes to that. We, <laughs> we sometimes don't realize like, hey, they might have other issues going on because they might be afraid of, you know, because of their undocumented. In fact, I had a client, a friend of mine who, who contacted me, who was transgendered, gay, who couldn't work anymore because can't do drag shows, you know? Those things really, things that we don't talk about. And that impacts the community that we're, in which we live. Yeah. So Sal, I'm curious if you... Go ahead, Aaliyah. Oh, sorry, I was just I mean kind of real. I was just gonna say, um, you know, if you were standing in front of some of our local decision makers and you were talking to them about how do we actually engage folks like your friend and make sure that their stories are elevated so that any response we're doing is reaching folks who have different jobs, different educational backgrounds, different healthcare needs. Like what would you what would you say to them? What have you seen might be some good ideas that we could try and pilot or test in the city? Very simple. I think just going to them. I mean, I think that's one thing that I don't necessarily see that we do that in the city. We don't actually go. We, I, I think in some ways we kind of expect for what we say uh, as, a, as a city to just automatically appear there, right? Yeah. No, you, you have to go there. You have to eat lunch with them. You have to have dinner with them. You have to see where when they're struggling with them. We can't just be this like disconnected we're so we think we're interconnected but we're really disconnected 
Um, it's great that we post these signs. Oh, you know, my friends or neighbors and stuff in different languages. I see that all over the city, right? But is it really real? Like, is it just lip service? And I, I don't think it really. I don't think that's effective, right? We need to go there. We need to see what how they live, what they eat, um, how they have fun. I don't. We don't do that. I think we're so disconnected in the sense of like. What do you like? Who? Who? How do we connect with you? Like, yeah. we don't do and that. That's the we don't goal that. of what we're really trying to accomplish here on Checkbox Outreach is that elevating those stories and letting people just have a real conversation or hear a real conversation from others that they might not interact with every single day. So, if you don't have any friends or associates that you know, maybe doing drag shows, like that's somebody yeah. to talk to and get that perspective. And it's so important when we talk about the policies um, and the impacts on our community and how we work together. Um, but I wanted to go back because I cut you off a while it's ago fine. talking about <laughs> what does the issue really mean for the community um, when we talk about access and, you know, whether that's education. So you were talking about education and health and how all of those things tie together um, so I don't want to be a rude host and I wanted you to finish your, <laughs> I wanted you to finish your thought if you still had more. Yeah, no, I think, I think when it comes down to access, it's really understanding how we open those doors, right? And access really comes down to where we connect with somebody. If I know about you, then I have a better understanding of how I can connect with you. Therefore, I could open that door for you. I don't think that's done much here. And I, I, I think we want to think that even though we live in a bubble, we do live in this bubble here in Alexandria and Northern Virginia and even D.C. where we're a little bit um, unaffected in some ways economically. We're a really strong region when it comes to job development and job retainment. But how does that really impact the smaller communities that we depend on? And right now you can see that we're depending on the grocery store worker. We're, we're depending on the person who's going to deliver our food. We're depending on these these things that we thought were little and minuscule, but they've become so much more important now. That's a really good point. Right? And what happens afterwards? Like what's going to happen? Like, are we still going to keep them as heroes? No, I think, I think that's a real, I think that's a really real point. I think right now, their stories are elevated. We're looking, we're so excited to lift people up and lift up the worker, like you said, that everyone before was not paying attention to. And when we go back, I think there's this rush to get back to normal, get back to normal, get back to the way things were. Well, that's normal wasn't working for everybody. And normal kind of sucked for a lot of people. Oh, yeah. And so how do we take, you know, some of this renewed hope and optimism and story of connectedness and actually make sure it's built and woven into how the city operates and how the city does business. And I don't necessarily know what the answer is to that, but I think you're raising a really good point that we have to start asking the question and paying attention to like setting up the systems to do this better for those very people now. Yeah. And I think we not only do we elevate, but we maintain those stories, right? Mm -hmm. Continue those stories throughout our time with them or whatever it may be. That's critical for me because it, it the only thing is I, I'm a literature major. The only thing that I've only understood was memories and history uh, because literature is about history and memories. 
And when we're able to capture those history and that memory, we're able to understand what we can do for the future because the future doesn't exist until we live in the present. Well, the only thing we have to really study is the history and the present. We live in the present. The future doesn't exist until we make it. And, and that's about action. And to me, action is impact. And I, I wrote something down, which is about visibility. The question about visibility. There are a lot of people who are not visible. And, you know, how we want to see this coronavirus pandemic has allowed us to make populations much more visible. Yeah. And, and I think the, that's really good. Line, right? Like the oh, pipeline yeah. for... You know, uh, the grocery worker, especially as a high school worker or somebody who might be in college here locally, um, is a great entry into the workforce. But then what does that path look like for them? Or maybe somebody who's not in college and is just trying to find their way. But yeah. what does that path look like? What does that upward mobility look like? Because at the end of the day, and you touched on this before, it's all about income. And yeah. we know that income is the biggest predictor of health and quality of life, like hands down. There's no, nothing greater. And that, that's tied to your educational attainment and your housing. And so what, in terms of success, when you're talking about access and you're talking about the groups that you shed light on, what does success look like for those groups in terms of access? Yeah, I think it, it's the idea of, stigma and options. And I, and I mentioned that because I think in this country, I've worked in higher education for a very long time and we pushed the whole college process and theme for many, 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 many years. And we have a huge gap that's going on in this country, even more so now with like 8 million people retiring from the trades as an example. Um, and we unfortunately or fortunately live in, a, in an area that is really highly educated with bachelor's degrees and master's degrees, and we don't take into account the value of people in the trades, right? So moving people for, away from that stigma that the trades are less than, right? Because right now they happen to be more than. Right. It, and, and to elevate that and to create access to appreciate more is a really big part of what I want to see happen, uh, especially for community of, of color and other communities as well. Uh, that just because you want to go into a trade doesn't mean that you're less than somebody who has a master's degree. In fact, they're probably going to help you fix their air conditioning when you need it in the summer, right? Those types yeah. of things. Um, or, or when you need it today. Right. <laughs> we, or when you need it, or like a CDL driver right now who's yeah. delivering your food from some factory or some place to the grocery store so that you can eat, right? Um, I think that's the part where we need to start reducing that, that stigma, We've been pushing too much of this higher education when it comes to like college and university. And of course, you have the balloon of debt that comes along with that versus Hello. the trade. Yeah, I exactly. I feel that on a very cellular and soulful level. <laughs> I think we all do. Those who went to college in like the 90s and eight, in you know, early 2000s. Um, debt is, well, you might be younger than I am, but you know what I mean? <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll own it. <laughs> Sal, I'm curious, in order to do that, 
Um, so I guess in order to do two things, I think the first, going back to some of the earlier things you said in the conversation about not only elevating, but maintaining stories so that Mm -hmm. we can actually craft human centered policies. And then also the second part of what you raised about changing how we get people to think about the trades, like what resources or what conversations are needed in order to really move forward policies in those areas. I think the big, the big one is um, there's a several actually when it comes to expanding that conversation, and one of them is the Workforce and Innovation Act or WIOA, Workforce Opportunity and Innovation Act, um, which is really important at a federal level, which is uh, kind of moving funds towards the training aspect, not just at the uh, level of the adult level, but also to that K-12 level, which is CTE, which is um, career and technical education, which is critical. Moving some of those funds over to to that area versus higher education, right? Because higher education gets a lot of funding. Um, even now, despite the cuts that have been happening, they still do get a lot of money, which is which is imperative. However, we could also increase the funds going to CTE and WIOA funding, which would help people retrain them or upskill them to get a different job or to move into a job that's a lot more sustainable. That's one. I think the other one for me is awareness. It's making people aware that these things are out there. You know, working in workforce development not everybody knows that there's training available or I can upskill for this or that, or I need, I can, this is a benefit that I can access. It, it really is that comes down to that awareness pace for me. Yeah. That's, and that's, I think it has to be double pronged, you know, an and, and of, it can't just be one or the other. It has to be both at the same time. Yes, I agree. It, ha- it has to be. And we, we have to be advocates of that, whether it's, I mean, we, we're right across the river from D.C. Uh, we, we need to be able to go to our representatives, our senators, our congressmen or women um, about you know, these issues. Like, hey, this is what's happening in my community. I don't think that our politicians are that connected to our communities as much as I think they want to think that, not just at a national level, but also even at a local level. And there's not enough of that noise making from our community as well. Um, so the ownership is on both sides, right? The the politician side and also the community side. But what comes down to that is the awareness piece, making people aware of what's going on and the avenues that you can take to make sure that you make impact. That for me is important. Right. Well, Sal, it has been such a pleasure talking to you today. Uh, thank you so I much. feel like you have taken us on a journey from the power of your history to using your voice in order to shape policy to the need to build bridges that tell people's stories in a way that is not tokenizing but maintains their story and lifts it up and weaves it into real policy and action. And I think you've left our listeners with just a lot of really exciting ideas for how we use all of that in order to transform career and technical education um, and those opportunities within our city. So I guess my, my final question would just be, how can our listeners engage with you and with your work? 
Yeah. So I think for me, the only thing that I really ask is engage within your own local community, be much more aware, um, look at the meetings that are happening in our own city council. Um, I know it's a little bit boring, but read some of the notes, look at what's happening at the national level, not through your news that you consume, but look at the bills that are being passed, read the bills. Um, I think to me, when people do that digging rather than being spoon fed is very important. That's powerful. Uh, that's, yeah, it's, it, you've, I think you in some ways are much more knowledgeable than what's happening with what you're being spoon fed. So I think doing that part, and that's really about ownership. For me, that's about ownership, owning what you are going to fight for. I love it. I love it. Well, thanks so much, Sal. This has been Thank amazing. you so much, Kaylia. All right. Well, that's a wrap. Thank you. It's time for action. Checkbox Outreach is more than a podcast and simply putting a check in a box. This is about impact and moving the needle. Aaliyah and Katie, what are the next steps? So Aaliyah, Sal is super awesome. I was, I mean, he's just so, when he speaks, you just feel his light and his energy. And I, I think he's so great for that. Yes. And I love the fact that we're pretty much neighbors. I want to go find him and continue this conversation. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's just that guy that like you meet and you have that connection. Like I know you, like I have to know you from somewhere before he's awesome. And if I don't, then I want to get to know you. <laughs> yes, exactly. So we, you know, talked a lot in this episode, went on a few different topics, but for me, what really stood out was talking about access and who's at the table and how do we make our decisions based on who shows up and who shows up isn't the fault of the people, you know, entirely in the community because they don't know that they were even invited sometimes. And so I would love to get your take on how can we as a community, this was a city of Alexandria, Virginia issue how how do we do a better job at engaging people who aren't at the table right now? Yeah, no, I think that's a really powerful question because honestly, one of the things that stood out to me the most when we had the conversation with Sal was when he talked about his friend who is a drag show performer and how their business is basically shut down like many other businesses right now. Um, but there aren't supports for that type of business. That's not what we think about when we think about supporting the small business. And so I guess for me, the question kept coming, you know, it's not easy to do outreach. I get that. And I think a lot of times we feel like we're trying. We, you know, have call, click, connect. We have um, other online services. We're doing Facebook Live events. I think our city staff are really trying to experiment with different ways of reaching other people. I think the only way we change the table is to keep asking who's missing and to look around and see, are we getting the same people we've got before? Um, and if so, then what would we need to do differently? If call click connect, if a virtual engagement, if a pop-up event continues to produce the same people, and what's a new location that we've never tried before that we might need to test out just to see if we get somebody different. Yeah. Um, I think, unfortunately, it's a lot of trial and error. And I know that's hard when you are trying to be an effective steward of city resources and you don't want to test something and have it fail. But if we don't get into that um, sort of mindset of testing something different and doing it in a way that we haven't done before, I don't think we're ever going to have a different table, a table that has friends like the very friends that Sal talked about. 
For sure. And it's addressing the fact that there are so many different user groups. And so Mm -hmm. you have, you know, we talk about people of color, we talk about racial equity, but even within that, right, when you can... My frustrations, even why we started Checkbox Outreach, was around minority business support. And when you look at minority businesses, they come in all all different businesses. It's not one business. It's not a construction company. It's not a plumber. It's the tech entrepreneur. It's the the electrician, like somebody we've talked about in a different episode. So it's all of these different user groups that have to be invited because their stories all mean something and have real implications on the work that we're doing and real implications on the resources that might be available. The other thing is kind of being open to what we don't know, right? So when you talk about who's not there, it's also saying, what don't we know? And one of my biggest lessons was that we did a big like event for when I worked at the health department and we were so proud of ourselves that we translated our documents in Amharic and Spanish and in Farsi, I think. And what we found out when we did the event is that a lot of people were not, you know, they couldn't read in their native language. A lot of people that were coming to this one particular event. And so when you look at, okay, we translated the document, but if people can't read it, that's that's problematic, right? And so you have to have the people continuously coming and you have to be open and malleable to what that approach looks like because you're not always going to get it right and it is an evolving conversation. I think you also have to challenge the assumption. I think sometimes we think that if folks aren't at the table or they haven't showed up, it's because they don't care. That we somehow have done a really good job of inviting them and that their decision not to be there was their decision and not our fault for not doing enough outreach. And I think that that comes from a strong place of privilege that needs to be challenged. I think part of doing this work is really stepping back. And we've heard this in some of the interviews we've done and examining yourself. Like what biases are you bringing? What assumptions are you bringing to the table about who you're trying to invite and why they're not showing up? And how do you put those in check in order to push yourself out of your comfort zone? I mean, I have seen this a number of times. I sit on the Transportation Commission and oftentimes we'll have opportunities for public comment. There have been times when there's nobody there. (laughs) And then there have been times when there are a ton of people from maybe one neighborhood and the decision that's being made has consequences that affect our entire city and how we move not only across Alexandria, but how we move and connect with other neighboring jurisdictions. And I think that We've never really had this deep conversation about why aren't people showing up? Is it because they don't know about the issue? Is it because the meeting is at seven o'clock on a Wednesday and it's hard to get there? And it's just, I mean, not even hard to get there. It's hard to come to something at seven o'clock at night on a Wednesday when you've been working all day or you have other responsibilities. It's a question of, you know, some of these issues are really technical. I, even being an urban planner, sometimes I have to have my notes and my books, like looking yeah. up different terms just to figure out what are we talking about with this sidewalk width or this light change or this here. And I think really being able to ask those questions of who do we leave out just because of the way we've set it up um, is really important moving forward. It speaks to the importance of definitions and understanding that diversity does not 
mean inclusion. And so Mm -hmm. when we talk about diversity, diversity in its simplest form means who's at the table, right? What do they look like? Whatever. Inclusion means how do people feel when they're at that table? And so, like you said, if we're at a very technical level in these meetings and people might go to one meeting and be like, I didn't understand anything they were saying. They might as well have been literally speaking eight different languages. I'm out. You know, that's a problem. And the other piece is that there was some research done on, you know, community outreach and engagement. I forget where, but they were saying how when they did surveys of people saying, why didn't you come to the meeting? And they were like, I didn't know I was invited. And so Mm -hmm. we advertise these public hearings, but still people don't know, oh, that's me. I'm public. (laughs) Like, I'm supposed to be there. And my opinion matters. Yes. I have something to say. And the other thing is that it's 2020 and now it's COVID times. We have this way of doing outreach and engagement that is very almost civil rights era of where people were looking at, let's let's have a meeting in the church. Let's in, involve the faith groups, which I'm not discrediting. That's super powerful. Mm-hmm. But people, we cannot just do that. We can't just have a meeting at the community center. We can't just have a meeting at the church. You might have to go knock on some doors or go set up a shop at the, at the grocery or at the park. And I think the um, Recreation and Parks Department did an awesome job when they were redoing some of their park plans. And they just put poster board out on the parks with a Sharpie and saying, hey, you're clearly a user of this park. Let us know what you think. And so that just getting feedback in that way was innovative. And, you know, it worked like they used some of the recommendations that people were saying. I think you raise a really good point about these, you know, being in times of coronavirus and dealing with, you know, the spread of COVID-19. And I think what's coming up for me is it not only does it challenge us to be innovative and think differently, I think we also have to get to the point where it can't just mean that things are on hold. So I don't know if you've noticed, but a lot of, you know, other monthly commission meetings or our traditional ways yes, of engaging done. folks, they've just, <laughs> they've just stopped. They've just completely stopped. And I get that, you know, People are dealing with a lot of different things and we're trying to figure out the best way to engage. But at the same time, these meetings have stopped. Decisions are being made about our recovery and our response. And so we need to figure out in light of this change, like what is possible? What is a different way of doing that? As people, I don't know, are waiting in line to get in the grocery store and get toilet paper and hand sanitizer. Is there something they could fill out? Is there some sort of you know way that we can engage them, um, keeping in mind social distance practices, but like using the times where people are as they're going out? I don't know what it looks like, but I just think it can't mean it's on hold. And this is the very time where we need to be asking questions. We need to be engaging people, especially some of our essential workers. And this, I mean, it is a local issue. It's a state issue. It's a federal issue. I think you will have the most juice for your squeeze at the local level and how do we engage and get people to the table, get their, get their voices to the table. They don't need to physically be at the table. We have to engage differently and we have to always be looking at who's, who's receiving this information, who's not there, like you said, and how are we really taking what they're saying and affecting change? Because a lot of times we still will take what they say and do the same thing anyways. And that's super problematic. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think, you know, when I think about this moment we're in and some of the things that we've raised, I really do see it as an opportunity. 
And as we've talked about, I mean, you are former City of Alexandria staff. We have some amazing folks working at the local level who are trying to figure this out. We have new policies around training um, for diversity, equity, inclusion. We have other efforts. And so I think this is really a time to test and to experiment and to see, you know, how do we push ourselves forward? How do we keep asking who's missing? How do we hold ourselves accountable for really creating an inclusive community where voices are heard, where people feel like any table that's created, they have a seat at that table. Yeah. And for the listener that, you know, is trying to get involved, I think go to a public meeting, take your notes. If you have questions, reach out to us. I mean, we can try and help you answer them too, but getting yourself into the conversation is the first step. And, you know, taking that charge of being like, I'm here. I will say if listeners are interested in taking up your advice and they're like, where do I even find out about these meetings? The city has a great um, email service that you can sign up for that posts announcements about when different boards and commissions are having meetings. I think there's also through that same communication, you can find out about council hearings. Um, I would also say another resource, sometimes even just going on social media, a lot of our local elected officials will post sort of upcoming meetings or places that they're going to. Uh, Again, you can always reach out to Katie and I, and we can send you some of these links and resources, but there are different ways that we can help you find out, you know, who's meeting and who's talking about some of the issues that might be of interest to you. Perfect. Love it. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to another episode of Checkbox Outreach. You can find us online at checkboxoutreach.com or on Twitter at Disrupt Outreach.